Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Blake Williamson. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. I'm Blake Williamson. Today, my co-host, Dr. Gary Wirtz, and I have the pleasure of speaking to our friends, Dr. Eric Mertens from Belgium, and also Dr. Greg Parkhurst from Texas. We're talking about the excitement surrounding the Evo Vision ICL, which has recently received FDA approval for the correction of myopia and myopia with astigmatism. Dr. Mertens can share valuable international perspectives based on his experience of using this lens for the past several years, and Dr. Parkhurst provides insights into what he learned from the clinical trials. If you're looking for an opportunity to learn more about implantable columnar lenses, these guests are amongst the best of the best surgeons you can learn from. Let's listen in. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. We are your host, Blake Williamson, and the man, the myth, the legend, Gary Wirtz in the house. Gary, what's going on, man? How are you? Man, I'm really good, Blake. Um, today is such an exciting episode. I cannot wait to get started. We've got Dr. Eric Mertens coming to us live from Europe and Dr. Greg Parkhurst. And today we're talking about, I think, one of the most exciting launches in ophthalmology in a long time. We're talking about uh, Evo. So, um, Blake, what are you excited about Evo first? And then we'll kind of get started with some, some historical and, and experience uh, facts from the guys. Yeah, well, well, first, I'm excited about the T-shirt you're wearing. People are listening to this on a podcast. So they can't see the, the video, but I love that you're repping the Hot Cotton Radio. Shout out Hot Cotton Radio. Um, also good uh, coming off that Millennial Eye meeting. I loved uh, hanging out with you uh, and seeing everybody, uh, especially all the young surgeons. And a lot of people were talking about Evo. And, you know, my thing um, is that, you know, if you're going to learn how to do something, you need to learn from the best, people who do the most and people who have the most experience. And that's why I love that you selected uh, – these two uh, guests today, and we're going to learn so much from them, both on an international perspective, which has been out for, you know, what, 10 years or something like that? Um, yeah. you know, over a million implants or close to it uh, implanted. Um, and then also here nationally, we have uh, Greg Parkhurst, who everyone knows, and it was part of the trials and everything. So I'm excited to hear from them. And, and I think that what excites me most for everybody listening to this podcast is now is the time to get off, up, uh, get up, get up uh, off your butt and, and, and get started with ICL. If you have not done an ICL, but you do LASIK and you do multifocal lenses, you need to ask yourself why that is, and you need to address that problem. And I think that these two cats are going to tell us how to, how to figure that out. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've, I have a little bit of experience with ICL uh, in the past, and some of the barriers I bumped up against were, you know, who's the right patient? What's the right, what's the right, is it just for the high myopes? In our, in our practice, we sort of just selected those minus 10 and above people who couldn't really um, have LASIK based on the ablation depth, et cetera. And it was really pigeonholed into a small category of real high myopes. Um, we had to do the LPIs. It was expensive and it just filtered out a lot of people. But uh, I want to start with Eric and just, Eric, it seems like Evo um, is really changing the way people are thinking about fake IOLs in the realm of refractive surgery and where they put it in. 
um, you know, into their armamentarium. So a few facts just to kind of think about. In 2016, I think when, when EVO was launched, um, ICL was about 2% of every refractive procedure. 2019, it was 6%. And now at the end of 2021, it was 9% of all global refractive procedures in the world were EVO. So Eric, will you just walk us through the transition that you had when you were going from the Vizian ICL to EVO? How did it change your conversation? And how have you enjoyed using it over the past number of years? Well, first of all, thanks guys for having me and uh, having, uh, can, I can share my experience with you at the ICL. And I'm very thrilled for my uh, US surgeons, US colleagues that they can finally, finally use the, the, the Evo Vision ICL. So uh, I went through a transition and when I was doing the, the ICL, first my cutoff point was minus eight and above. Then I went down to minus six and above. And uh, from the, uh, the Evo Vision ICL onwards, I, it dropped dramatically in the first two years after the introduction in Europe. It was introduced in 2011. And actually, every myope now is a candidate for ICL. I've done minus ones with the ICL. Um, of course, we have to discuss with, uh, whether refractive laser surgery is also an, an option. But you can do any kind of myopia with, uh, with the EvoVision ICL. Because, as you pointed out, you don't have to do any... A, extra work, no laser PI or surgical iridectomy, which makes it much easier. No extra visits for the patient to come into your office. No extra burden, you put in uh, pilocarpine for the yak uh, iridotomy, which is bothersome and so on. And also cost-effective makes a huge difference. And on top of that, um, once in a while, we, we got some pressure spikes uh, with the previous uh, ICL, and we got the emergency calls that there was an angle closure glaucoma. I've never seen a pressure spike or angle closure glaucoma since I've been using the EvoVision ICL. So in safety, terms of safety, huge, huge difference. And by then, by 2011 until now, I've been doing percentage-wise of my total volume more and more ICLs, and now more than 80% of my total volume is ICL, which is, of course, a little bit atypical, but uh, that, that's the way it is. Blake, what, how does that strike you? 80%, can you imagine doing 80% of your refractive procedures ICL? I think that, that speaks volumes to how uh, Evo really changed the game for you in your practice. I think in the US, it's going to be the diopter powers, I think it's going to be from minus three to minus 16 in terms of the diopteric powers and then uh, one to four diopters in terms of toric by half, half diopter increments. So I don't think we'll be able to get to go as low as you can go in Europe right now. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you Gary, what, what, stri what strikes me though, Gary, was what he just said. He, he would go up to like a minus one. So basically like if he can do an ICL, he's doing that. As my, and, and so I think, I think what strikes me the most about that is I believe that residents coming out of residency in this country have more to have more tools, you know, and have more comfort with doing an ICL than they would LASIK which, because they're inside the eye. They're already in the anterior chamber fooling around. They're doing MIG surgery. They're doing lenses, right? They're not making the flap and, and lifting flaps. And, you know, so even though we all know LASIK is very straightforward, um, you know, to skilled surgeons, like I think that residents actually ha ha are, the like ICL is sort of more in their wheelhouse right out of school than even LASIK is if they didn't do any LASIK in residency. So that's interesting that 
that especially if you don't have to do PIs and you're not worried about glare from 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 the PI and all that stuff. Yeah, I'll be honest. I found it a little bit um, awkward starting LASIK. Uh, I started with microkeratomes, and it's like everything's great until it's not great, right? <laughs> until you have a free cap and you're looking for the cap inside of the you know mangled up inside of the microkeratome, or you know, and you're tr- you're trying to put that back on and line up the marks, you know. Um, you trust the machine, but the machines machines don't always operate um, 100%. So even doing automated surgery like LASIK, you still have to, you, you know, you're putting a lot of trust in that machine. Whereas when you're doing anterior chamber incisional surgery, you I feel like I've got more control when I'm doing cataract surgery because everything is in my hands. Greg, what are your thoughts on this? Obviously, you were part of the US FDA trial. Um, you have, you're one of the rare surgeons in the U S who've gotten a sneak peek at this. What, what are your thoughts on, on what Eric said in terms of his transition from the Vizian ICL to Evo and how do you see this fitting into your practice going forward? Yeah, well, I'm really excited about it. I think that we're going to be doing even more ICLs, uh, now that we have, you know, the central port in it, the fenestration, um, really because it makes it a lot easier for the patient. You know, we used to tell patients, I mean, even last week when we were still doing some LPIs, okay, this is the worst part. Um, so, you know, once you get through the LPI part, the actual procedure itself, piece of cake, the hard part's the PI. Um, and it's actually the laser treatment itself, but not to mention, you know, the, you know, sometimes more than an hour waiting for pilocarpine to take effect, you know, the headache, the brow ache, sometimes I've had patients get nausea and even, and even vomit uh, from, from pilocarpine. And, you know, in the world of refractive surgery, we're, we're trying to make this a great experience, not only, not only trying to nail our outcomes, but we also want this to be an easy experience for patients. And so I think the Evo is really going to accomplish that. Yeah, yeah I actually have had a couple of patients who um, I do all of the, we call non-refractive lasers in our practice. So I do all the LPIs, SLTs, and YAGs. My partner actually ends up doing uh, the, the bulk of the ICLs right now, but so I had the unfortunate task of doing the LPIs on, on the patients that he was going to ma- mainly do ICL. And I've had a number of them, not a ton, but a number of them actually pass out yeah. in the lane because I would do two LPIs per eye. So we ended up doing four LPIs um, and, you know, it's just not, not a fun part of the procedure. So I'm super excited that we can get away from the LPIs. And also from a timing standpoint, we can do this like tomorrow. If, you know, if someone's ready to sign up for, for ICL, it's not like, okay, we've got to schedule the LPI. We've got to schedule a follow-up. Then we've got to get, get you in for surgery. And then, you know, Eric, are you doing bilateral, generally a, a, a bilateral sequential ICL on the same day? Or are you separating these uh, procedures out? I, I do bilateral sequential. Uh, even before the EVO, I did bilateral sequential. Uh, because of, yeah, when you do corneal refractive surgery, you also do both eyes at the same time. Of course, we change our, our instruments at a different kind of uh, sets of instruments, different batch numbers for the methyl cellulose and so on, different gloves and, and, and so on. So actually, um, endophthalmitis is, is not a big issue with, with ICL. There has been a very nice paper published many years ago, about 18,000 eyes, and the, there were only three, three of them had endophthalmitis. And two out of the three, where the outcome was is known, uh, they recovered 20-20 vision with the appropriate, uh, appropriate antibiotic treatment. Because of course, you still have that barrier between the anterior and the posterior segment, because the, the zonules are intact, of course, the, the, the lens is there. So even then, 
when you get an endophthalmitis, don't panic. And in those cases, you can get a very good visual recovery with the, with your appropriate treatment. Greg, what are you doing? Are you doing uh, sequential or? Yeah, yes, we, we've been doing sequential, bilateral same-day sequential surgery uh, for years, even going back to, you know, over 10 years ago when I was doing these in the military. Uh, we had a similar protocol and, and you know, like Eric said, you, you simulate two separate trips to the operating room by having two completely separate sets. We actually have two cabinets. We have a right eye cabinet and a left eye cabinet and every medication uh, is a separate lot number from the manufacturer in the left eye cabinet and vice versa. So there's even in the extremely unlikely chance there's some sort of contaminated solution, it's only going to touch one eye. Yeah, and for us, you know, we, we do it a little differently. You know, dad still uh, d- does it, a, uh, he's always done it a week apart. He'll do one eye and then the following week he does the other eye, not because of the ophthalmitis, but just because of sizing. We know that the biggest issue with, with ICL is sizing and what do you use? Everyone uses different things, different machines, different algorithms. Um, and, and so it's hard to pick one device, even though I think there is, is some consensus on a few boxes out there do a great job. Uh, but his thing is if the, if he has a pressure spike or it's too big on the one on the first eye and he sizes down, you know, so my thing is I have the luxury of having two surgery days back to back Tuesday, Wednesday. So what I do is don't make them make the whole week. Cause that's kind of miserable in between eyes. It's like having a roller skate on one, one, one foot and a cowboy boot on the other. So, so, but I will do a Tuesday, Wednesday deal, right? So I'll do Tuesday and then see them the very next day. And if they're rocking and rolling, which nine times out of 10, they are then, then fine. If they do have a little pressure issue, Maybe we push it a week. And, and so for those listening to this who may not want to jump full force into, you know, bilateral sequential, just know that there are other ways to do it. If you can do it back to back, that'd be great. But uh, but certainly within within a week. Yeah, I, I think that's a uh, that's a good point, Blake. You know, I think with with this uh, with Evo, we're really going to I think we're going to be seeing this more and more that we're doing bilateral sequential. Greg, I want to know from your standpoint, you know, you've you've, you've done you've done the clinical trial and then we'll, we'll flip we'll flip to Eric. Where do you feel like the sweet spot is for Evo? Um, you know, a lot of times for me, the conversation of ICL was like, you can't have LASIK, so what else can you have? Like maybe you have, maybe they have some sort of form-proof keratoconus. We think eczema ablation is not going to be a good idea. Maybe they don't have, you know, thin, you know the cornea is too thin, K's are too flat. Maybe even Avagen, their Avagen score is high and you're worried about some, some risk there. Where do you feel like now, instead of just saying, okay, you could have LASIK or you could have ICL. Where do you see the sweet spot for ICL fitting into your practice? Well, when I talk to surgeons who are just getting started with ICL, that's usually where I you know, think is most natural to start is in those non-laser candidates. That's, that's kind of the low-hanging fruit. You know, someone who's a super high myope, um, you know, we're definitely not going to do a laser treatment on a minus 15. Uh, is there another option? Yeah, well, well, contact lenses, you know, sure aren't great. Um, contact, you know, glasses are two inches thick. That's not a good option. So, you know, is, is there a is there a vision option for somebody that's in this kind of dire straits of super high myopia? And, and that's like the lowest hanging fruit to start. Um, next from there, I would say, you know, some of the things you just mentioned, Gary, but, you know, people with thin corneas, maybe there's a little inferior steepening. You're wondering, like, you know, even if I did a, you know, minus five ablation on this cornea, is there any chance that it could go on to develop ectasia? So those kind of borderline corneas where you're thinking, you know, I don't know about how I feel about laser here. ICL is, is a great option. And, we, and we've published outcomes in, in kind of abnormal cornea cases and, and they're excellent. Um, kind of like Eric said though, when, once, you, once you start using it in, in those environments, it's natural that the power you start using goes down um, because you know what we've seen for years, I, I remember this again, even going back to my military days over 10 years ago, 
these were some of our happiest patients, you know, just subjectively. They come in and it's like, people are very happy. And so you find more and more reasons to start considering offering an ICL. So today, the way we, we present it is we say to all our patients, hey, when you come in, we're gonna do some scans, we're gonna measure your eyes and let you know which procedures you're eligible for. You know, some of them are laser treatments, some of them involve lens implant approaches and we'll let you know, you know what, what you qualify for and answer any questions that you have. And just by presenting that as an option to everybody, it's interesting, there's a lot of people out there that like the idea of a removable, reversible technology. They like the idea of, you know, leaving their cornea, you know, fully intact. Uh, others, you know, like they hear lens implant and they get ultra squeamish and they're like, no, this is not for me. But there's, an, there's quite a large number of patients out there that are intrigued by this option. They often haven't heard about it before. They ask more questions and then you can go down the path of informed consent. I'll pick the procedure that they're most comfortable with. In terms of cost, and then I'll get you to, to you, Eric, do you try to price it competitively with LASIK? Is it a little bit more expensive just because of the OR supplies and, and facility fee? Where are you, I mean, you don't have to say where you're pricing it at, but like generally speaking, is it about the same price or 20% more, 30% more than LASIK? We try to keep it within about $1,000 uh, per eye of our LASIK, of our LASIK price. So that it's not this like huge leap, you know, for, for, you know, one thing that's, um, the, you know, the thing that's required to be able to offer price points like that is you can't be doing it in a hospital. Cause oftentimes, like if you're, if you're trying to do it in a hospital, it's going to cost like $15,000 or something. It's a crazy number. Like people aren't going to do that. Um, if you have your own ASC or if you have even an IOR scenario, you can keep the price point on the facility more realistic for patients. Right. Eric, you talked about the fact that your practice has grown to 80% of your practice is now Evo and you're offering it down to minus one. How does that conversation go? You clearly have the skill set and the tools and the technology in your office to offer the latest and greatest technology in the world to your patients. And you're choosing and, and your patients are choosing Evo. But where do you see the sweet spot? Like when a patient comes in, is it a minus three? Is it a minus five? Or is it other factors you're considering? Because you consider Evo and LASIK kind of parallel technologies and the other factors are driving the decision? Well, uh, of course, it's a process. Eh? But um, uh, in the end, what we do now, we, we send an information brochure to the patient uh, by email. And there, ICL is positioned right next to LASIK and right next to SMILE. Huh? But it's a premium. It's a premium uh, procedure uh, because of and already Greg uh, talked about it. It's it's reversible, it's removable, high quality of vision, uh, no issues with dry eyes, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, night vision is uh, quality is very good. This uh, the paper was published by by Greg, by the way, many years ago, and uh, comparison of of both uh, laser refractive surgery and ICL. So and now patients come in and I always say, okay, let's do the test first. Right? We have the laser options. Uh, you have the flap option. You have the lenticular extraction option, or you have the intraocular lens option. Let's do all the tests first and let's then discuss the pros and the cons. So my patient coordinator is doing that and they're all uh, very well trained in that. And most of the patients, they, they, they feel like that the ICL is in, in their case, the best option because they're long time contact lens wearers. Uh, so they have dry eyes uh, or they have uh, night vision issues. Or as you said, as you already mentioned, um, I see in a lot of discussion groups, that they're, oh, uh, would you do LASIK or PRK on this eye? Because I see a little bit of steepening there. So, like, come on, guys, uh, <laughs> why bother? Just put in an ICL and don't have to bother about the cornea. Uh, so all of these things, 
Of course, it, I mean, it's easy for me to speak because I have already 10 years of experience with, with the EVO, uh, but, but this, this will continue to develop in the US as well. So you'll see in five years down the road that people will start uh, thinking like, like I think already, like, okay, there is a, a problematic cornea if you have dry eyes, just put in an ICL and you can sleep well at night, They're easy. Yeah, I think that people are going to start to gravitate down. I mean, I would say that most people I talk to who aren't putting in a ton of them, but but are comfortable with it, they're still doing LASIK for you know minus five, minus sixes, minus sevens. You know, usually it's that minus nine and up that they tend to go there. But I think you're going to see that creep down to closer to six or seven. That's what I think. I mean, at the end of the day, I still enjoy lifting a flap and doing a forward diopter ablation. It's no big deal. Um, but I think I'm going to start going down to closer to to, to seven. I would think. Uh, in a perfect LASIK candidate. Greg, is that how you feel? I mean, do you have a number cut off if, it's, if they're a perfect LASIK candidate, um, you know, uh, or a perfect ICL? You could do either. I mean, do you, are you still doing five and six diopter ablations? Or? Yes, I'm still doing five and six diopter ablations. Um, but I would say, you know, kind of that range you're talking about right now, up in the, around seven or eight is when I really start to lean more ICL and make the recommendation. Now, if a patient pushes back and they're like, no, I really just don't want this implant, will you please do a minus eight LASIK on me? I will still offer that provided their cornea is sufficiently thick and sufficiently healthy, but I do make the recommendation about the reasons why I think ICL is better at that range. They still get to make the choice on their own. And, and how, do y'all, how do y'all recommend that people get started with this? Because I'll tell you, my personal journey was, was like when I first started, you know, what, six years ago, uh, my father was doing all the ICLs. I was like, okay, cool. I'll just send those people to him. And, and I'll be honest, like when I was like, gosh, you know, I'm sure it's easy and he makes it look easy and I can watch y'all's videos. But if I do something wrong, all of a sudden I'm doing a cataract surgery on a 22 year old minus 15 patient. Right. And so it was that trepidation that I was kind of like, well, I have someone next door that can do it. So why not just send it to him? Right. But a lot of people don't have that person next door. So like they have to decide to do it. So so I, I, I started doing them onesie twosies and getting more and more comfortable. And after about 10 or so. I was like, oh, I could do this. This is pretty comfortable. So how would y'all recommend young surgeons listening to this that want to get started? How do they, is it wet labs? I mean, you know, do you just go straight in and, and just put it in the first eye and hope for the best? I mean, what do you do? I think there is a there is an initiation course uh, run by Star Surgical, which is very good that you you take it. And uh, w- once you you have the, the, the background, the scientific background, start with high myopes, deep anterior chambers, so a little, so and have a a rep be in your in your in your uh, OR because in the beginning when I did ICL uh, it took me took me forty five minutes for one eye and I had problems loading the ICL and then one of the reps of Star came in he taught me exactly how to load the lens because this is one of the most important things in ICL surgery load the ICL perfectly take your time this is a golden advice I will will give to everybody, load your ICL perfectly because when you deliver the ICL in the eye and it is turning around or even flipping around, then you're not in big trouble, but you have to take it out and load it again and so on. So, but when you load the ICL properly, it will deliver nice and fine in a flat fashion. And it's easy to put it behind the iris. Second thing is when you inject the ICL, do it slowly, slowly. That's the only part of the surgery, you have to do very slow so that you make sure that the ICL is delivered in the right plane. So these are my, my two tips uh, for b- b- ICL beginners. 
I agree with all those points, Eric. And, and I would say, in addition to taking those courses, is also talk to some surgeons that are experienced with the ICL because, you know, you just gave a couple of great surgical tips there. And there are others, you know, yeah, I could list a couple. Number one, I would say, you know, don't overfill the anterior chamber with too much OVD. Um, you know, that, I think that's an instinct that we have as anterior segment surgeons, especially resident coming out. I can imagine, you know, you want to just push everything out of the way. Uh, but an overinflated, you know, uh, puffer fish anterior chamber is not the type of environment that uh, aids in ICL surgery. So you actually want to let some of that viscoelastic out after you've made the incision. And there's some other little tips just around like, where's your paracentesis? What, what direction is it pointing? How do you fashion that? Um, just little simple things that can make a, that can make a difference. So I would encourage people to talk to other surgeons that have done a lot of these before they start doing a bunch. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. And Greg, I'd also like to know from your standpoint, what nomogram are you using for sizing? I think you have one of your own perhaps that, you, that you've developed. How, to me, one of the biggest question marks is how do I figure out the size? You know, I think it's a little bit variable based on what device you're using and your experience. We talked just a little bit about how you go through the, the sizing of ICLs in terms of measurement and what, what one you order. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I think it's a great question because uh, I actually think this is this whole sizing conundrum is really where Evo is going to make a tremendous difference because the fact is the Evo is going to be more forgiving and more tolerable to slightly undersized and slightly oversized ICLs that the prior versions did not. So, so, so the great the great news is you don't have to be as precise with sizing this lens than we have had to be in the past. Um, so, but to answer your question around how, you know, how do I size it? We've, we've been using uh, ultrasound biomicroscopy for many years. Um, you know, the particular device that I used and, um, and I, actually a paper just uh, came out published by Morshafar out of uh, Hoops um, Center uh, that looked at, looked at our nomogram that we developed on a retrospective analysis. But it's basically, you know, looking at things like the sulcus diameter, the shape and rise of the crystalline lens, a um, couple other measurements that we make in terms of picking the right size. We've since gone on to um, using the ArcScan device more recently. Um, and there's a really nice nomogram that you can plug in online. It's called iclsizing.com. Um, put up there by Dan Reinstein from the London Vision Clinic. And, and you, can, you, know, you can actually have a technician do the scan with this device. Uh, I still think the surgeon should do a lot of the caliper placement because there's some judgment around, you know, where do you put the calipers and where do you get the numbers from? Uh, but you can plug that into an online nomogram. And it's, it's, it's really interesting how effective that nomogram is at predicting what your vault will likely be postoperatively. So, so whereas in some of the prior nomograms, it would suggest like, okay, in this eye, use a 12.6. And in that eye, use a 13.2 size. In this newer nomogram, it actually tells you, well, if you use a 12.6, here's the likely vault you'll achieve. Whereas if you use a 13.2, you'll probably achieve this other vault. And so you can kind of make a, a decision as to whether it's a super deep chamber, you might prefer a little bit larger vault. If you're borderline on the chamber, you may want a smaller vault. So you can kind of prescribe which lens you want and what vault you want using that kind of sizing strategy. I guess most, most people will just kind of keep, would just size one down. Wouldn't you say, Eric, if, if you're kind of in between two, you know, it's always, you know, I've always learned that it's much easier to deal with a lower vault, especially if you have that center hole. Well, uh, exactly. And um, I have a series now of more than 30 eyes, which I'm following for six plus years with a vault of less than 100 microns. And I haven't seen a single 
opacity in all of these crystalline lenses. So, which means that this is very safe because of the accuracy is pushed between the crystalline lens and the ICL before it goes into the anterior chamber. So there is always a separation between the ICL and, and the crystalline lens. So that's one. Secondly, um, it's uh, I use for a nomogram, uh, it's based now, I used everything, Y2Y to UBM, uh, whatever. And I'm using the last years the uh, based on the uh, anterior segment OCTs. And I, I started with the Nakamura formula. So whatever machine you're using, use the Nakamura two formula, which is published in the American Journal of Ophthalmology a couple of years ago, um, and start with that. I'm now using uh, my own nomogram, which is based on, on my anterior segment OCTs and MS39 from CSO, which is not FDA approved, but this is based on sclerosper to sclerosper, lens rise, the thickness of the crystalline lens, the corneal volume, and so on and so on. But uh, this will be published hopefully uh, at the end of this year, uh, but we're still working because it's an, an AI-based nomogram. And so uh, we're 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 getting there. So that is based on one single anterior segment OCT. But the Nakamura formula is very easy to use and, uh, and already very very predictable in its sizing. And as Greg pointed out, also uh, the higher volt is also less predicting, uh, uh, less uh, problematic than the previous versions. But still, I don't like the, the high volts above one one thousand microns because it can push the pupil a little bit open and so on. So I I rather go down uh, with my sizing, except of course for the toric ICL because you don't want that toric ICL to rotate. That's, that can be a little bit tricky then when the toric ICL you then you have to be uh, wary that you do not undersize and maybe induce some rotation, late rotation, which you don't want in toric ICLs, of course. Guys, thank you so much for taking time to give us a little bit of both the national and global perspectives on Evo. Um, I'm super excited about this. This is a technology that I think is on the rise, uh, definitely around the world and, and, and here in the US, we're going to see what happens, but I'm really excited about it. I've heard kind of off the, uh, you know, some rumors that pricing is going to stay neutral, maybe even a little bit down from the old model vision ICL. I mean, we'll see if that's true or not, but that's sort of the word on the street that they're going to keep uh, prices pretty much neutral, which will be great. And uh, I just can't wait to get started with this and uh, see the success and how we can help treat our patients. Yeah, I think that uh, I agree with all that. And I think that, you know, there's even cooler stuff coming down the pike with the presbyopic uh, uh, implant as well, you know? So I think that lens-based surgery and fake Carlo surgery is here to stay. Um, Star has uh, really done a transformation over these past few years with new leadership, and uh, it's been amazing to watch. So thank you, Eric. Thank you, Greg, for coming on and giving us your expertise. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Off the Grid. Thank you to Dr. Gary Wirtz, Eric Mertens, and Greg Parkers for joining this episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Until next time.